The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 178 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for checking in with us again this week. We've got such a fantastic episode, but first of all, we do want to thank a new reviewer on Apple Podcasts. The username is Florida Girl in Germany, and she wrote some really kind words about our last week's episode uh, with Dorinda, where we were talking about uh, Pearl Harbor and uh, thank you so much, Florida girl in Germany. I, too, very much enjoyed talking to Dorinda and hearing all about uh, Pearl Harbor. It was great. So thank you so much for the kind words, as well as the five-star review. Uh, this week on the podcast, my guest, Boyd Matheson, is one of the most fascinating men I've ever talked to. He is brilliant and just an incredible guy. Uh, many of our Utah listeners know Boyd from uh, his radio show, on KSL. Uh, and then many of our national listeners may know Boyd because he's been in the world of politics. He's been on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News, and all of those talking politics. And he is an amazing guy. And coming up this week in my Latter-day life, just barbecuing with my buddies. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today, here in the Latter-day Live studios, it is my pleasure to have someone that so many of you already know. You've heard his voice. You've seen him. You've read his words for so long. He is the host of the Inside uh, Sources show weekdays from 1 to 3 p.m. on KSL News Radio. He also uh, has worked with Senator Mike Lee as a chief of staff. He's done all kinds of good corporate work. I, we're going to take the whole episode just going through your accomplishments. <laughs> Let's just jump to it. Boyd Matheson, welcome to hey, the show. Hey, it is great to be with you, Sean. <laughs> I, I'm glad to have you here in person. I'm sure that so many of our audience, you know, especially Salt Lake being our number one market for our podcast, uh, they already know you, they already love you, but we're going to get the behind the scenes from you. And Hopefully we I, won't ruin anything in the process. Uh, you're just going to build even bigger fans. Yeah. But before we jump into that, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your younger years. Where are you from? Uh, I actually just grew up in uh, Salt Lake in the Holiday Cottonwood area there. And, uh, you know, we uh, I was one of 11 kids. I was number eight. So, so I'm going to jump out. Salt Lake, 11 kids. I'm going to jump to the conclusion you were born into the church. Yes, that would be a, that would be a correct assumption. That would have been really surprising if you had said no at that point. That's right. Yeah, so one of 11, so you were number eight. Yeah, so I have seven sisters and three brothers, but the first six were girls. Uh, so I was very properly schooled and trained growing up. Uh, I learned a few things, though, after I moved out. I learned that you could actually have a hot shower. Like that was a radical <laughs> concept for me uh, with with seven sisters. You know, once one of them got into the bathroom, it was like just you know cycle through, and uh, you knew you were hopeless. So I, I learned about hot showers when I went on my mission. I also learned something else, and that was uh, about pancakes. Uh, so we had a tradition in our house uh, every Saturday afternoon, five o'clock. All the kids were expected to be home, and my dad would make pancakes for us. Saturday at five. Saturday at five. Wow, that, that was the magic hour. And uh, we always joked that, you know, if uh, like a stack of can pancakes was, you know, you see it on the box, it's like, well, that's just not even close. Uh, my uh, my older sister, Vicky, she always joked that having pancakes with the Mathesons was like the early stages of labor pains. You'd get them one at a time and about 10 minutes apart. And <laughs> that's kind of how we ate pancakes. Uh, but I have to tell you that uh, you want to talk about a rich tradition Beautiful. Uh, and high impact because it was during that time when we were waiting for those precious pancakes to come our way uh, that my parents were sharing with us, you know, things that were important to them. More importantly, they were asking questions and listening what was mm. important to us. And for years after, you know, we were grown and married and gone, uh, everybody always tried to find a good excuse to show up at five o'clock on a Saturday afternoon to be part of that kind of legacy and tradition. It was it was great. 
I love family legacies like that. Yeah. I love that you could look back and see that. I also <laughs> completely understand why you did not do waffles. The wait for it, waffles no, would have been <laughs> eternal. That would have been the definition of eternity. <laughs> eternal, a truly eternal family. Yeah, is eleven kids waiting for waiting waffles. for a waffle. Yeah. <laughs> so, what were you into when you were young? Uh, you know, I was uh, I was a passionate uh, basketball player mm. uh, and. Uh, Spent far too much time in the gym, and that's carried over your at least fandom because I've read some things you've written about basketball. Yeah, basketball was it was a big part of of my shaping and and forming years. I, I was obsessed. I had a singular goal. Uh, I wanted to play college basketball, and being a little on the vertically challenged side, uh, I knew that would be tough. And so for me. It was one of those I knew I, I knew I had to practice five to six hours a day, six days a week to, to make that happen. And so I, I kind of worked my plan on through high school, got to my senior year. Everything was lining up just the way I'd planned it. It was perfect. Uh, but as my senior year started to wind down, so did my right shoulder. Really? And they got to the point where it would uh, pretty much dislocate whenever it wanted to. Mm. Uh, don't know if you've ever had the glorious experience of waking up on one side of the bed with your shoulder over on the other. Uh, it's <laughs> not, not good. I, w- I went into the doctor and he just shook his head and said, we, we got some major surgery that we need Yikes. to do. And so, of course, I did the natural thing. I immediately went into denial. You know, this is not happening to me. And I sure. kept playing, but it kept getting worse. And, and finally, mm. I had to have the surgery. And I remember so distinctly sitting down in my room, uh, feeling incredibly sorry for myself. Mm. This was not fair. This was not cool. I'd done all the right things, all the right way. There's no way this is coming to an end this way. Uh, and the phone rang. And it was uh, Elder Hugh Pinnock on the other end of the phone. Uh, the Pinnocks lived in our ward. Wow. Uh, his wife, Anne, was the Relief Society president when my dad was bishop of a brand new ward. Uh, and there's a million things that Sister Anne taught us about what ministering really looks like. Uh, but Elder Pinnock invited me to come over to his house. And, I mean, I had no idea why he'd want to talk to me or what he'd want to talk to me about. But uh, I, I got dressed and uh, drove over, and he met me at the front door. And Hugh Pinnock was, you know, smile, warm, and nothing. Like, no handshake, no thanks for coming over. He pivots, walks Yikes. me back into his den. Uh, we sit down, and he told me probably the most important story of my life. Uh, he said there once was a, an old man, and the only possession he had, his only form of wealth, his only way to provide for himself, was his horse. And he lived in this tiny little village, and one night there was a, a big storm, thunder, lightning, uh, the horse gets spooked, it bolts out of the corral and runs off into the desert. So the next morning, the people of the village are going around assessing the damage from the storm, and they get to the old man's place, and they see the broken gate, the empty corral, and the people of the village say to the old man, this is so awful, this is so terrible, you've lost your horse, your only way to provide for yourself, what an awful, terrible thing. And the old man looks at the people and he says, no, you don't know this is so bad. You don't know this is an awful or a terrible thing. Days go by. One night the horse returns, brings with it 50 wild horses it's been running with out in the desert. Mm. So now the people of the village come back and they say, wow, this is so great. This is so wonderful. You've got all these horses, all this wealth. You'll never have another worry. What a great, what a wonderful thing. And the old man looks at the people and he says, no, you don't know this is so good. You don't know this is a wonderful thing. Well, the old man had a, a son who was one of the great young warriors in the village. Had spent a lot of time perfecting his skill with the sword and the sling. And one day he's out there breaking in one of those new horses and he's thrown. And his leg is crushed. Mm. So never again will he use those skills he worked so hard to develop. Again, the people of the village come in. What a tragedy. How awful this great young warrior is now crippled. What an awful, what a terrible thing. And the old man looks at the people and says, no, you don't know this is so bad. You don't know this is an awful or a terrible thing. Well, it wasn't many days later that the cry of war was heard throughout the land. The warlords came through the village and gathered all those that were able to fight and led them off to a terrible battle. And that was the end of the story. Elder Pinnock stood up. He said, I want you to remember that. Escorted me out of the house. I got in my car. I started driving home. I was kind of half waiting for Paul Harvey to come on with the rest <laughs> of the story. Uh, but that was the story. Wow. And I, I'll never forget, uh, uh, laying in the hospital room after my surgery and, you know, friends and coaches and family all come to visit. And they all started the same. 
you know, oh boy, this is so awful. You know, you've you've done all this training, all this work, your dream is all gone, it's over. What an awful, what a terrible thing. And without even thinking, I was responding, No, you don't know this is so bad. <laughs> you don't know this is an awful, terrible thing. And it wasn't. It was probably the most important thing that ever happened to me. Wow. Because it was during that long rehab and that slow road back, I had a lot of time to myself mm. and an opportunity to focus on things that were a heck of a lot more important than making baskets or winning championships. And it just it's become a lifelong lesson of the you know, the Lord works in mysterious ways to be sure. And often what we jump to conclusions and say this is awful, this mm. is terrible may well be one of the most important things that happened to us. And especially in the the time that we live in now, it's so easy to jump to, oh, this is so awful, this is so ter- right. terrible. And you just don't know. It's it's more about your perspective on things and an eternal perspective uh, that really changes the game and the dynamics of it. So Elder Pinnock was your Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> he, he trained you without he, even knowing you he were was, trained. Yeah, he was one of one of many. I was. Oh, what I a was. Blessing. I was really blessed to have. Boy, a, that a, is beautiful. A lot of Mr. Miyagi's in my life, which it was helpful because I went to Japan on my mission. So I was. <laughs> right, well, this, I this, was prepared. This rolls into the mission because now you know and. It, was it easier to make the mission decision knowing that your shoulder was going to stop you from playing basketball in college anyway? Uh, actually, it it had less to do with my shoulder and my basketball as it did, did to what I learned and what I decided to become. Got it, yeah. In the midst of that. Beautiful. And so the, the decision to go on a mission was much more a byproduct of a commitment to a journey to discipleship. Mm. Uh, than anything else. I love it. So you end up graduating high school. You went on Just your barely. mission. Just barely. Just <laughs> barely? Okay. <laughs> That's not and, bad. Uh, you think I'm joking. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's all right, though. You did graduate. That's all that Just matters. barely, yep. Graduation's a yes-no thing. Yeah, the that's details. Right. Yeah, that's right. Who cares? That's right. And, and a couple of my sisters, you know, should actually be credited with me graduating. Sure, so. <laughs> sure. And, of course, in our generation, you've got that wacky year you graduate high school, you got yeah. a year to figure things out and then get on yeah. a mission. What did you do for that year? Uh, you know, I just continued on through. I actually only had about a half a year oh, okay. uh, from the time I graduated until I, I left on my mission. And nice. so it was a little bit of work, but but mostly it was it was a discipleship path. Oh, work was so work. Beautiful. And uh, it was much more about uh, what's next and getting ready for that. You got your mission call to Japan. What yeah. mission did you serve in in Japan? Uh, it was Kobe. Oh, the Kobe mission. Awesome. I've never been to Kobe. I've been to Tokyo multiple times, but never been to Kobe. So what was your reaction when you see, hey, you're going to Kobe on your mission? So I uh, I may have been the most finicky eater on the planet. Like oh. I, I, <laughs> I, I ate, you know, Wonder Bread and, you know, Ding dongs and cupcakes was you know kind of the <laughs> the diet. So uh, I was probably more worried about the food than I was anything else. And yeah. of course, learned to love that, and and uh, that changed my palate. Beautiful. Uh, where the mission changed a lot of other things. Yeah. So how was your mission? Oh, uh, you know, just. Uh, obviously, fresh fresh off the Olympics, I was just like basking. My two favorite things, you know, it was Japan <laughs> and the Olympics, and I just got to re you know immerse in all of that and. Uh, so many wonderful lessons and so many, you know, extraordinary individuals, uh, including my, you know, both of my mission presidents uh, were just, you know, profound influence and incredible uh, opportunities to do do good things. I've gotten to go to church in Japan a few times, and one of the things I love, I've gotten to attend a church all around the world, is that it's the same church, but different. Yeah, they bring their culture to the church yeah. and that is beautiful yeah. that's how it should be was that your experience in japan yeah yeah there's a there's just a, a level of reverence that's unique in japan reverence for uh for everything um and so that changes how you say or pray the sacrament prayer uh, a lot of times i think we focus on our young men who say the sacrament prayer as mm. opposed to those who pray the sacrament prayer, it's different. Uh, we see people who take the sacrament each week, uh, but don't partake of the sacrament each week. They're, they're very different. Oh, that's a beautiful thought. And I hadn't thought about that. I always thought about the respect part of it mm-hmm. and the quiet part of yeah. Japanese culture. The Japanese people, when they decide to be quiet, 
they are a beautifully yeah. reverent, quiet people. Yeah. But there is, there's a humility and a reverence to the Japanese people that's inherent. Yeah. A respect for they, elders, a respect yeah. for other people. They, they know how to be still. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think that's another really important principle for our time. Uh, my, my favorite passage in the New Testament is the Savior on the stormy sea with mm. the disciples. And we often think about that. And of course, you know, there they are on the stormy sea. Uh, the disciples are racing about trying to save themselves and, you know, fix the sail and make sure things are tied down. Uh, the Savior was resting in the back, which is also very instructive. Um, but then finally, the, the, the disciples are so trying to save themselves in this challenging moment. And when the Savior gets up and says two words, be still, mm. uh, I am convinced more today than I ever have been that when the Savior said be still, he was not talking to the wind and the waves. Mm. The wind and the waves already knew who was in charge. <laughs> he was talking to the disciples. Oh, beautiful and perspective. That is one thing we in our world we are so trying to save ourselves and steady the ark and do all the things and if we would just again something i learned in japan just be still just be present to the moment mm. and uh, that we we miss so much we miss so much of the spiritual nudgings and promptings we miss so much in terms of uh, i think what our heavenly father is willing to teach us uh, because we're just not willing to be still we're reacting to beeps and tweets and buzzes and and just learning to be still and, and to be okay in the silence. Mm. Uh, that was a lesson that I learned both in Japan and, and as a young man. Uh, I, was not a, I was not a great scouter. Uh, camping at my house, anything below a Marriott is technically camping in, in my world. <laughs> we have that in common. I'm with you on that. <laughs> but, I, but I had a leader who convinced me uh, that it would be good to go into the Uintas on a camping trip, and I hated almost every minute of it. Uh, but there was one day that it was just raining. I mean, just pouring. And so all the, the guys were, you know, ponchos on, everybody's kind of hunkering down. And this leader, Von Hansen, he said, just walk with me for a second. And so we walked out just a little ways away from the group, and then he stopped, and he just kind of was very still, kind of took all of it in and then he said he said boy i just want you to sit here and i want you to listen mm. he said listen to the rain listen to the leaves and then listen just a little harder and he walked away and that was one of those moments where i learned to be still long enough mm. to recognize you know that divine that divine part of all of us. Yeah. And uh, we need that in the world more than ever, but we won't find it uh, if we can't be still long enough to mm. hear it, to feel it, to experience it, uh, and then to be with it. What a beautiful lesson to learn. You know, I, uh, I, I fall guilty of it. If, if I don't have my earbuds in at yep. all times, you know, <laughs> exactly. I'm not comfortable, you know, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think it's, it's something that we're missing. No doubt. Uh, you come home from your mission. What came next? Uh, so I had, I had actually started a little, uh, business, uh, sports camps business actually mm. found out it was a great way to teach young people, you know, good life skills and goal setting and those kinds of things. So I came back and, and jumped into that and, um, did a grand uh, half a semester uh, of <laughs> higher education. Uh, in fact, I'll uh, I'll tell you, I was I was actually down at BYU. Uh, this would have been a few years ago. My daughter had a uh, civics class, and so they asked me to come and speak. So we were walking across campus at BYU uh, on the south side of the uh, Harold B. Lee Library. There's a big pillar. Mm. And as we were walking past that, I told my daughter, Sarah, I said, that's the spot. 
She said, what? <laughs> like, that's where I dropped out of college. <laughs> and I had been, so I'd had this little business going. I was doing some speaking and some training. And uh, back in those days, you had to, as a freshman, you had to do a tour of the Harold Bealey Library. And you had to have the goofy headset on and a clipboard <laughs> and Dewey decibels. You know, you're going through this whole thing. And I had just gotten off a call, you know, booking an international speaking tour and was doing all this and was just frustrated with a, a professor uh, of business that, you know, just didn't quite have any business savvy. And, <laughs> and uh, anyway, it was just one of those moments where I took everything off. I went out, I leaned against that pillar, and, and then I went and dropped out. And uh, and then I had to point out to my daughter Sarah. I said, "Now you see that little dark patch of cement? Those are those are your mother's tears." <laughs> and she still cries just a little bit. But <laughs> so that was the extent. But the important thing was is that I met Debbie uh, yeah. in that semester down there at BYU. And, and tell us a little bit about your wife. So she's from uh, southeastern Washington, mm. uh, Basin City area. There grew up on a. Uh, apple orchard, uh, which was just amazing. Her dad was like the ultimate farming entrepreneur. Love it. Uh, and, uh, you know, went from uh, helping both him and, and uh, my mother-in-law with their histories. Uh, so amazing. They went up there and it was just a dust bowl. And they, mm. the first time I went up there, there was like 10,000 apple trees. Wow. And just that hard work and perseverance and grit and grace. And uh, so she grew up there. She's one of uh, nine kids. Mm. Uh, so she gets the movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so we met there and uh, very short dating and courtship and got awesome. married and off we ran. How long have you been married now? Uh, it will be 33 years coming up in Unbelievable. December. Unbelievable. What yeah. a blessing. Yeah. Incredible. All right. So we got to get back to this story because now <laughs> not only are you married, but you know, you've left the pillar. You didn't turn into a pillar of salt. You didn't look back. You said, I'm moving forward. What came yeah. next? Uh, so, you know, a lot of, a lot of trial and error, uh, a lot of, a lot in the business training and consulting space and uh, lots of highs and, and lows there. Uh, but ultimately, ultimately, it was a lot of international travel uh, and speaking, and again, opportunities to just meet great people uh, all around the planet and really have that global perspective. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, yeah, just countless lessons along the way there, but mostly about people. Yeah. yeah. Was it mostly business speaking then you were consulting yeah. as you were going? Yeah. Yep. So a lot of strategy, a lot of communication, a lot of leadership. Uh, working with executives that way. Do you have a favorite country? Like a place oh. that when you think about going to visit it, you go, oh, yeah, that's an amazing yeah. place. Or are they all amazing in their they're, own way? They're so, there's just so many amazing yeah. places. A couple of big favorites. Uh, Edinburgh, Scotland is just one of my I love Edinburgh. all-time favorites. There's nothing like going there, going up on Arthur's Seat. I also love a very obscure place uh, in the, the British Isles, uh, Downham and Chatburn. Oh, never uh, been which, there. Which, from church history, if you, uh, if you follow Heber C. Kimball, uh, a mm. most extraordinary story. And it is pretty much the way it is it was in Still the 1830s uh, as it is today, and it's just a magical spot, uh, just yeah. a very reverent spot, and uh, that's another real favorite. Yeah, those uh, those hillsides in the UK, when you talk about... Still, I got to sit uh, by Loch Lomond oh, yeah. in Edinburgh one yeah. day, and I just sat that's there. That's a good day. <laughs> that's a good day. In fact, they... Uh, they had at the little store there. They had the the shortbread was being delivered while I was there, so it was still hot. So I sat by Loch Lomond eating oh. shortbread, and that is in my top ten. Yeah, favorite days I was going to say that's like yeah, that's definitely up there. <laughs> that's awesome. So when how soon into this did you start having children? Uh, right away. Yeah, yeah. yeah we'd been married about a year, uh, year and a half, I guess, and we had our. Our first, and yeah. and they came pretty regularly. We had a, uh, we got to number four, um, so we had three girls right off the bat. Uh, so people were starting to wonder if I, if I would have the determination of my dad to get You're to going the boys. down your path. Yeah. yeah. So and then we had uh, our fourth McKay, and then we actually took all of them and uh, spent a year down in Australia on a business that? consulting program. We loved it. We were in Perth, oh. so over on the west side, uh, just magical place, beautiful place, amazing I've been to Perth. people. I love Perth. And, yeah, it was yeah. good fun. We had uh, we always had like twelve missionaries in the area, and uh, so it was always just a, a great thing there. And then when, when you're in Australia, do you forget that you're not in the U.S.? 
Uh, you know, Perth is Perth is actually one of my favorite cities. It's probably the yeah. most positive city in the <laughs> in the world. Uh, and I don't know if it's because of they still have all the mining, the gold and opal yeah. over there. There's still sort of that you know we just might hit the mother load, you know, kind of <laughs> uh, feeling there. Love and, that. And you can just feel it. You yeah. go down into the city, and and there's just an energy and an excitement there. And so yeah, it's definitely uh, has a different feel to it for sure. Yeah, I I just I love Australia. When I'm there, more so even than Canada. I just yeah. forget that I'm in another country till someone yeah. talks. It feels yeah. so much like the yeah. U.S. and beautiful place. When you were traveling so much all over the place, other than the year that you were together yeah. with family, a question I get asked a lot is, how do you how do you keep your family together? Yeah, you know, while you're all over the world, you're in all these different places. What advice do you have for maybe younger families who one partner is traveling? Yeah, it, it is a challenge to be sure. Uh, and in those days, you know, we didn't have FaceTime and right. video chat and Zoom and Me all too. of that. Yeah. It was, I mean, sometimes you'd go a few days before you could reconnect. Uh, but I think the biggest thing is to be very intentional mm. about what you do. So a big thing for us and, and our kids, you know, all five of our kids as they were growing up, uh, what stories uh, and reading was really important. And so I literally on cassette tape read their bedtime mm. stories. Uh, and a lot of those were, they were not content with the, the book stories. It was, it was stories we made up about, you know, castles and knights and Edinburgh and the, the whole thing. And, and so I recorded stories upon story upon story that they could listen to and read. Uh, one of the other things I did uh, early on, is I, I just had these uh, three by five cards that I kept in my pocket, and as I would go through the day, if I saw something that reminded me of my daughter Rachel, I would write it down. Mm. Uh, or if I saw something that reminded me of Lindsay or Sarah or McKay or Will, uh, I'd just jot it down. And so my kids have these books, and we just pasted them in. So that they knew, even though I was really far away, I was still thinking about them. Wow. And I was still engaging with them. And so I'd come home and we'd kind of divvy out the cards and, uh, and we'd have those conversations. And, and that kind of connection, helping them feel like they're part of uh, not just the end of your day – when you yeah. you know when you call in and check in or you know which is usually the worst time because your spouse is probably frazzled <laughs> uh, and frustrated and the kids are cranky sure um, but having that ability to say hey you're you're part of everything I do and you know today I was in this building and I saw this vase and it reminded me of you know what you wow. made da, 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 or or you know I was interacting with someone and and they kind of reminded me of you because they told this story and. They went back Beautiful. and forth, and so suddenly they become part. Uh, they become part of that, and uh, you know, just kind of a reverse flip of that. Uh, one time, I was heading over to England, and this was a this was like a death march uh, of a speaking tour. Uh, so I had I was going to be there for twenty one days. Mm. I had fifteen full day seminars oh. uh, to teach, and then uh, at the time, Elder Pinnock happened to be in the area presidency, and so I did a fireside almost every night through. So I'm getting ready to go. And on the first uh, three quarters of the trip, I would not be in the same, I wouldn't sleep in the same city two nights in a row. Wow. So I had to take everything with. And so I was preparing to go and I was doing my least favorite activity of all. I was ironing my shirts. I hate to iron shirts. I still hate to iron shirts. And so I'm ironing and my daughter, Lindsay, she was about four, maybe five at the time. And she just kept begging can I help, Daddy? Can I help? Let me help you iron the shirts. Uh, and we all know the help from a four-year-old is, right. is Super much more much more work <laughs> than help. And I kept putting her off, and I kept putting her off. And then finally I had this stroke of genius. Uh, I said, Lindsay, here's how you can be a big help. When I get done, I'm going to put the shirt on a hanger. And if you can just fasten the top button so mm. it'll stay on the hanger, that would be a big help to Perfect. Daddy. She was so happy. I was so excited. I thought I was a genius. So I got them all done, 14 shirts. I grab them, I throw them into my my bag, I head for the airport, I fly across the seas. Uh, I get to the first city, first morning, Brighton. I was in Brighton. And I got up to get dressed, and I went to put my shirt on. And Lindsay had buttoned the top button and every other button in the shirt. Oh. And so I was a little irritated. I had to unbutton everything, put the shirt on, button it back up, and then I went on my way. So the second morning, I get up in Liverpool, and 
to my horror, I realized that Lindsay had buttoned every button on every shirt. <laughs> and so this became this daily ritual every morning. And for the first few days, it was just this irritating, I'm in a hurry, you know, do the buttons. Uh, but about the fifth or sixth day, uh, I'll never forget, I was unbuttoning those buttons and I found myself thinking about Lindsay. Beautiful. And her smile and her energy and her drive. And and I realized that those buttons were just Lindsay's way of making sure I remembered her mm. uh, when I was far away. I and love it. so many good things to remember. So well, she's it, an overachiever. <laughs> she, clearly an overachiever. Go the extra button. That, or the go extra the extra buttons. buttons. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what a beautiful story. So uh, where did you end up going from? You, you kind of spent some time doing this training, doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know you've held some other positions, but I'm not sure which one came next. Yeah. So uh, I kind of went in and out of corporations. So often I do a training for an organization. They'd say, oh, hey, why don't you come you know, consult for us? Or why don't you come work for us for a little while? So I kind of popped in and out. Uh, always kept the consulting and speaking thing going regardless of where I was. I spent some time with Symantec yeah. uh, down in Cupertino. And uh, that was a great crazy wild ride uh also one of those where you kind of gain perspective of things Mm, it's always important to have the perspective uh so when i was at semantic i think we did 26 acquisitions uh in a really short order uh went from about a 200 million a year company to a billion and there was one moment we did uh, as we were doing these acquisitions i was kind of the culture integration you know bringing the teams together And we had just made this announcement, and so we were flying out uh, to several cities of this company we'd just acquired, and we were taking all of the executive teams. So we actually had two corporate jets uh, chartered to get us down there, and we're just getting ready to head to the airport, and the corporate attorney comes running and says, wait, 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 we got to sort this out. And he had the company bylaws in his hands (laughs) and the succession planning. Oh, and yeah. so we go into the boardroom and he spreads it all out and he's like, okay, CEO, CFO, you two guys cannot be on the same plane. You got to split up. <laughs> and then he kind of went through all these different things. This is okay. This is okay. And then he looked over at me and he says, Boyd, you can fly on whatever dang plane you want. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, everybody's got a roll. Uh, hey. <laughs> and I was very happy to know what all mine right, was. You got to choose a plane. <laughs> yeah. Boy, that's so, exciting. It was a good thing. So, <laughs> How yeah. did you end up getting into writing? You spent uh, a number of years as the opinion editor and the head of strategic reach at Deseret News. Uh, how did that come about? Uh, that's a that's a grand question. <laughs> Still scratched my head on that one. Um, so writing, I'd, I'd always written, um, and that was always a, just a, a big part of um, kind of who I was. It was kind of an extension, something like I learned from my dad. And uh, it, it, the, the politics kind of blended into all of that, mm. uh, which was also just one of those you just kind of never quite figured out. I was doing the business consulting thing. We actually moved uh, back to Utah from uh, – we were living up in Oregon at the time. And we moved to Cedar Hills. And yeah. uh, four houses down in our ward was uh, a guy named Mike Lee. And he was just attorney Mike Lee at the time. And sure. Seemed harmless and nice. We loved the Lee family. <laughs> and uh, anyway, when he decided to get into the Senate race in 2010, uh, he asked if I'd do the strategy and the communication mm-hmm. pieces. And so that was really kind of the first domino to drop that ultimately led to the writing and, and to the Deseret News was uh, my time as chief of staff for the senator. Yeah. Was that, did that feel like a big departure, being a chief of staff for a senator? Uh, it was, you know, definitely wasn't on my flight pa- plan, yeah. uh, but I, I've always said my life is sort of like a testament to if you ever want to make the Lord laugh, just tell him your plan for your life. <laughs> so I've stopped doing that. Oh, I uh, love that. But, uh, you know, when, when the senator, actually when the senator won uh, in 2010, I, w- I went back to business consulting for a year. And I was, I was, I'll never forget this. I was at the airport. I was getting ready to fly to Bangkok to give a leadership speech. Mm. And now Senator Lee called. And so we were just kind of chit-chatting on the phone, catching up. And then all of a sudden, it was like I could hear him in stereo. I'm like, where are you? He says, I'm at the airport waiting for a flight. And I turned around. We were literally sitting back-to-back at adjoining gates. You are kidding me. You are kidding me. That's hilarious. (laughs) As my wife said, that's when he sucked me back into the vortex. And and so I went back to to Washington not as a political 
guy, but really as, as someone who'd done business. And so that was kind of the lens that I looked at it through. But uh, really, all jobs are kind of the same because uh, it's all about people. Yeah. And as long as you keep that in perspective. And so that was a that was a great season. And I'm I am a firm and passionate believer uh, in seasons. Yeah. Uh, our lives are just seasonal. And mm. even our service in the kingdom is seasonal. Uh, our work is seasonal. Uh, our families are, are seasonal in some of the things that we do, uh, eternal in every other aspect. Uh, and so I just saw that as a season. It was a season to, to serve yeah. and to be part of what was going on in our nation's capital. Uh, and as I regularly made our staff very nervous, <laughs> reminded them that the founders saw it as seasonal work too. Right. Come in, work your guts out, make a difference, leave a legacy, and then get out. <laughs> I love that. And that, that, well, without getting political, that very much aligns with my <laughs> philosophy as well. Tell us what a chief of staff for a senator does. Or is the, uh, would that take say, the next hour uh, now? We might need a two-hour program for that. It is endless. It's it's actually the most relentless role I've ever had. Really? Uh, it never ends. It uh, You start at 4.30 in the morning, and if you're done by 1 in the morning the next day, it's a good day. Wow. And it's everything from it, – it is literally everything. So part of it is is – dealing with the policy issues. You've got a staff of about 50 or 60 people. You've got a budget uh, of, you know, of money that you've got to deal with. You've got employees in Washington and in the state. Uh, you're dealing with constituents and that service. Uh, you're dealing with the politics of it all mm. and elections and fundraising and campaigns. Uh, you have the dynamics uh, within the Senate itself, dealing with other senators and with other chiefs and, and other staff. Uh, your sort of cruise director when you know people from the state come out. Sure, uh, that makes do sense. that. Your trains on time, plates spinning, strategy, <laughs> psychologist. Uh, you know, and the the list goes on. Uh, which is why the the shelf life for most uh, chiefs of staff is about eighteen months. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, burnout so, must be just yeah, incredibly really high. high. So, and I, I I went way past my used by date. <laughs> I went. I was How long were you there? Four years. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> So in your time, we'll say in Washington, you're splitting your time between here and Washington. Yeah. Uh, in your time in Washington, what did you learn that was disheartening? And what did you learn that gives you hope for our country? So uh, the disheartening part is, uh, is, is also the heartening part. Uh, and that is that uh, we are not nearly as divided as people want you to believe that we are. Mm. The country's not that divided, um, and the and even our members of Congress are not that divided. Mm. Uh, I still firmly, passionately believe you could solve ninety four and a half percent of immigration in a single afternoon on the floor mm. of the House and the Senate because everyone agrees. Uh, so, so the battles are less about left and right; they're more about those in power against everybody else, and what people will do to remain in power uh, is division. Uh, dictators have used that for millennia. Yeah. Of if you convince the if you can convince the people that they're too divided, then they they need a dictator to take care of things. Wow. And so all of the fundraising, uh, all of the campaigns are all driven by anger, fear, and frustration, and convincing us that we're too divided to do anything, which gives presidents of either political party the excuse to do what they want by executive right. order gives congress an excuse uh, not to do anything because we're just too divided it gives them an excuse uh, and so that was the disheartening part is that there's so much that could be done uh but that power uh structure is is really the the problem the thing that's most heartening is because we aren't that divided on the the things that really matter really matter to everybody Oh, yeah. Whether you are in a deep blue state or a deep red state or anywhere in between, uh, the vast majority of Americans are center left to center right. Uh, yeah. And most people are worried about their job, their family, and making a difference in their community. So it's easy. I can be very pessimistic about our politics. Uh, I've never been more bullish about the future of the country. I love And that. the reason for that is because while our politics have failed, America won't. And the thing we all have to remember is the politicians have never led this country mm. back to the beginning. So we look at the Declaration of Independence, amazing document, inspired document, but it was not a leading document. 
the Revolutionary War had already been going for 18 months before the politicians got around to putting it on paper. <laughs> so important galvan- galvanizing document. Sure. Yeah. But it wasn't a leading document. It's community and culture that lead. Mm. Uh, look at uh, Jackie Robinson broke the uh, color barrier in Major League Baseball in 1947. Took Congress 17 more years to do any kind of meaningful civil rights legislation. Even simple things. Uh, my favorite example is Mother's Day. Uh, the the sweet lady from West Virginia who just wanted to just wanted to honor her angel mother, <laughs> and she worked. Do you know that Congress voted against having a Mother's Day, like eighteen times? I did not know that. She finally gave up and went home to West Virginia, and worked it at the local level, the community level. <laughs> West Virginia was the first state in the nation to have a Mother's Day, and then she kept going. She went to New Hampshire, and then she went to Connecticut, and it was only after. Every state in the union had already passed it. Then and only then did Congress boldly, bravely <laughs> declare, "We shall have a Mother's that is Day." So Congress, and so and you're you welcome. Know, yeah, and you're welcome. And we're at the front of the parade. Uh, so, so it's important. It's just important to remember. If you ever have doubts about the country, mm. just look around your neighborhood. Look at look at your ward. Look at your congregation, and you look around there and you say, "Oh yeah, of course it works." Of course it works, uh, and that's what that's what gives me the most hope. Is it's uh, I'll give you one other example. Yeah, uh, this please. is a local Cedar Hills. Yeah, uh, Denise Anderson, amazing soul. She's in my ward uh, and neighborhood. For years, we have done in our little neighborhood with Denise driving it a one k. 1K, 1K. Donut, 1K donut run. Yeah, a 1K <laughs> the, donut run. The, I love the, it. the race is over almost before it starts, but. I'll never forget going there after a major election in this country. And everybody, you know, people on the news were wringing their hands and everybody was worried about this, that, and the other. And I showed up and there all was. There was no talk about anything other than, how's this neighbor doing? How are your kids? Can I help with this? And, you know, you start the race. The race is over. Everybody's having donuts and hot chocolate. And then everybody just hangs out and stays. Uh, And that's the... That's the beauty of it, and that's the power of it. Is it's not a, we we have been conditioning ourselves to look to Washington to solve big problems. Yeah. Uh, we don't need bigger government. We need bigger citizens, more heroic communities, and uh, we have those all over this country. And all you have to do is look, and you can see it, you can feel it, you can sense it. And to me, that's the that's the real exciting stuff. Is what happens in community. It's you know it's that neighbor helping a neighbor. It's the it's the teacher staying after school to help the struggling student. It's the fifth grader standing up to a bully for a friend. Uh, those are the things that give me great great hope uh, in the future of the country. So awesome to hear someone come out of the Washington system <laughs> with this level of optimism. But you're absolutely right. So all the writing and all the things that you had done leading up to this, um, is this what ended up taking you to the Deseret News? Yeah, and it was really it was really an opportunity to uh, showcase the, these very principles. To me, it's always about principle, uh, <clears throat> and you can take anything to principle. Uh, it, it's part of what you know when I was doing a lot of analysis uh, for you know for CNN or Fox or MSNBC. Uh, and of course, the the natural model was always to get you know a conservative Republican and a liberal Democrat and let them shout talking points at each other, uh, and people are exhausted by that. Mm. Uh, it's why it's why there's a lot of pessimism. Yeah. Uh, and so to me, it's like if if we pull it to principle, uh, then everything changes. Right. And and I saw that over and over. I, I remember being on uh, one show. And they were just, they wanted the fireworks. They, you know, they wanted this big argument. And so, you know, the person that was uh, to the left of me, uh, you know, started off and they ranted and railed against this, that, and the other. And, uh, you know, these heartless, soulless, you know, people who aren't going to do this and that. And and I went back and said, no, let's, let's look at this. This is a fake fight and a false choice. Mm. And let's look at the principles. So you can have compassion and rule of law are actually compatible principles. Oh, yeah. And so let's have that conversation, and everything changes. 
And, and sometimes people don't know quite what to do with that because then they have to agree. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't fit the narrative. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but we have been conditioned uh, to, to react inappropriately to base emotions like anger, fear, and frustration. Mm. Uh, and so often we, if you, if, if you look in your email box, you'll, you'll see that, uh, I call it the shampoo bottle model. Mm. Uh, you know, on the shampoo bottle it used to say lather, rinse, repeat. Yeah. <laughs> so in our politics, yeah, the political parties have figured out if I can lather somebody up and get them angry and frustrated, then I can let them rinse that off with a nice 25 or $50 contribution to my campaign. And then I'm going to repeat it. And so we have been conditioned oh. to respond inappropriately to negative base emotions. And and that's a we the people issue. We have to reject that and say, nope, show me what the principle is and let's let's have that conversation. Because once you do that, uh, the divide is so small and so narrow. Uh, but what we have is we have people who would much rather drive a wedge than build a bridge. Yeah. And it's because it's profitable to them or it keeps seeking, them in power. Seeking to read into things that aren't there. Yeah, you know, people right. and and I think that ties in, I assume, to your time as an opinion editor. I assume that there were, were there, were there things that you chose to put into print that got a reaction that really shocked you? Like, how did they read this as that? Was that a fairly regular part of your life? Uh, yeah, uh, because a lot of times people just read the headlines. Oh, yeah. And, and I think one of the other curses of our society is this principle of instant certainty. Mm. And everything is so fast in our world that we, we look at the headline and we are instantly certain your motive, <laughs> you know, who's backing you, what that means and why you're an awful, terrible person. Yeah. Uh, because, and I actually believe, and this was part of my challenge as opinion editor, is more than we have a political polarization problem in this country, we have a contempt problem in this country. Mm. And by contempt, I mean that belief in the worthlessness of another human being because I disagree with them. Yeah. So Sean, if you and I disagree on something and I now see you as a worthless human being because you're wrong, because you're on the other side of an issue, then I can yell whatever I want at you. I can blow up your Twitter feed. I can melt down your Facebook page and I can still sleep at night and show up for church on Sunday and mm. feel good about myself. Uh, and so it's getting because past you've the devalued contempt. me already. Yeah, exactly. So of course you so don't count. Course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so we have to get past that. We have to, we have to relearn how to see and see deeply. Um, mm. And that's a, I think that's a lesson from the Savior that we often kind of look past. Yeah, is being able to see and and see deeply because that that is it. Because regardless of how hard our trial is, or what our circumstances, or what someone else's trial or circumstances are. If we see it deeply, we see it differently. Right. You know, I, I love the story of Hagar uh, in the Old Testament. Mm, yeah, sure. Hagar had a rough lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she had a, she no had a tough one. Yeah. Uh, but there's a beautiful scripture in there where she says, uh, the Lord, the God who sees me. Oh, so so here she was in this horrible, awful place. Yeah. And yet she said, no, he's, he sees me. I'm seen. Yeah. And, and, then, and then our... Then we start to see our own brokenness mm. <laughs> a little different because we're all a little broken. Right. Or <laughs> oh, a lot. Actually, we're all a lot broken. Yeah, a lot, sure. <laughs> uh, uh, and actually, just to, to, to kind of pull that full circle, uh, that's also something I learned in Japan. Mm. One of my favorite lessons from Japan is the art of kintsugi. We, have, we had a kintsugi expert here Did you really? on the show. Oh. She does therapy through kintsugi. Really? Oh, I've I never love that. heard of it, but she. Teaches big groups. Yeah. She had gone through a particularly bad Love marital breakup. Yeah. And Kintsugi herself and now does yeah. relief society classes and yeah. everything. The art of the precious scar. And uh, to call out the scar. Yeah. That's what makes it beautiful. Yeah. Ugh. Stronger. And, and the, the real ultimate of the Kintsugi for me is that it becomes stronger in the broken places. It becomes more beautiful and more valuable. Yeah. That's the atonement. Yeah, uh, and for our listeners who don't remember this episode, kintsugi, you basically take a bowl or a plate, you drop it, break it, however you break yeah. it, you glue the pieces together, but rather than trying to hide the cracks, 
you paint them with gold, you use gold glue. Yeah, it's a it's a re, it's a gold resin. It actually all, goes back all the way to the Shogun era, mm. era where yeah. one of the Shoguns had a, a precious bowl that he that he broke, yeah. and nobody could fix it, and so he gave it to a master, mm. a master artisan. Uh, who finally figured out with that resin and a little bit of gold dust, and then you fire that, it becomes stronger in its broken places, becomes more beautiful, more valuable. I and love then, that. And then you think of that from an atonement standpoint, uh, the master and his precious scars wow. uh, make all of us stronger in our broken places. Oh, boy, that's so. beautiful. When you were at Deseret News, do you have sort of one opinion piece that you'll just never forget because of how it was received, perceived, or the effect that it had? Oh, wow. Um, actually, I wrote a... I, we had a one-word editorial. <laughs> That's even better than the scriptures. The scriptures got it down to two words in a verse. I, we got it down you to one. You got it down to one. So it was at a time there was a, a big battle going between uh, the press and the newspapers uh, and the president of the United States. Mm. And uh, it was a, you know, president calling them evil and horrible and the press calling out the president. And it was this, it was this big First Amendment battle. Mm. Uh, and they were, both sides of that equation were using it for their own purposes. And so rather than jump on the bat, so there was a, uh, I think there were, I can't remember how many hundreds of, of uh, newspapers across the country uh, were doing a protest and were writing these, you know, big pieces and, you know, calling yeah. out the president. Um, and I thought that was a little over the top uh, because my opinion was the First Amendment doesn't belong to the press, nor does it belong to the president. Yeah. It belongs to the people. And so what we printed in the paper that day was the First Amendment, and then our editorial was ditto. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I went, bet that had more impact than had was, you written a whole bunch of It was words. great. I think I did 20 uh, media appearances over the next 24 hours as we talked about the principle that no, yeah. it wasn't about being on the side of the press, and it wasn't about the side of about being on the side of the president. It was about the principle uh, that are contained in the First Amendment. And I love so that. that was it. So that was kind of a uh, <laughs> that's a memorable the short, one. The shortest one I ever wrote, but uh, but Ditto was the was the piece. Uh, another one that was that was an enjoyable one uh, was uh, we did an event back in Washington uh, about truth mm. and trust. And so we took a really interesting angle, um, and I was able to facilitate this conversation uh, with Bob Woodward. Oh, wow. Uh, legendary, you know, sure. middle of the Watergate scandal. Yeah. Uh, and the lesser known player in that, uh, Elder D. Todd Christofferson, hmm. who happened to be the law clerk for Justice Sirica. I did not know that. So the first person to hear the Watergate tapes was one D. Todd Christofferson. He and Judge wow. Sirica would go into the basement of the courthouse. No kidding. And they, they pulled the blinds. They locked the doors. They had a splitter. They were listening. That's incredible. Um, and, and the lessons that came out of that uh, that were so significant about truth and about trust. Right. Uh, and just how powerful that mm. was. So to have those two uh, on the stage uh, appropriately at the museum uh, there in Washington, D.C., and then to be able to write around that from both of their experiences uh, in terms of what happened and why and what that really meant was, uh, was just a, an extraordinary experience. That is incredible. I mean, they're... When, especially when it comes to journalism, but generally in American history, Bob Woodward is that's about as big of a name as it gets. And then in the church, Todd Christofferson is about as big as it gets. So what a, what a wonderful experience. How did all this end up transitioning over to uh, KSL News Radio? So, um, you know, as you, as you move through life, I, I have a philosophy that... Uh, that life is too short and eternity is too long, uh, to, they, that we have to be very intentional about what yeah. we do. 
Uh, and so uh, I'd been doing radio with KSL. Um, and so those are really kind of separate and distinct moves. I, I had stepped down from Deseret News first, um, and then they decided there was a, this opportunity where I could expand uh, the radio presence and do a little more of that. So yeah. it was just one more of those, you know, if you want to make the Lord laugh, tell him, tell him your plan <laughs> for your life. But uh, So if people tune into Inside <clears throat> Sources... What are they in for? <laughs> What's the inside sources experience? Uh, you know, it's it's a little bit of everything. It's uh, it's a little bit of of kind of navigating the politics of the day, um, but not in a. Uh, we don't have anybody on the show who's going to yell or scream. Uh, yeah. We want to talk about the principles, and yeah. so it is wide ranging. Uh, so, for example, just in the last week, I've had Joe Trippi, longtime Democratic sure. strategist, a CNN yeah. uh, guy on one hand to, you know, former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich on the other. So they're like worlds apart and yet so much in common when it comes to the, the principles. So part of it is just helping people understand where we really are yeah. and then understanding what we can really do. Mm. Uh, what is our job as we the people? Yeah, and so it's always about a forward-moving conversation of, of how does this apply to me? What does this mean to my family, to my community, to my neighborhood? Yeah. Uh, what, is, what does that mean? So I'm, I'm a little bit of a political junkie. Um, and one of the things I've noticed myself is I tune out when I know that somebody runs to the left, runs to the yeah. right. When it's a, oh, here's why they're horrible and yeah. the whataboutism and everything – how do you set the tone so that doesn't happen? Because if I'm being honest, there's a lot of media out there. I think we can say that that's yeah. the whole goal. Yeah. I'm going to have you on. We're going to bash these people, and then you're going to get out. Yeah. Say something snarky. Get a sound bite. Rip yeah. them apart. Make sure YouTube is going to say that we shredded <laughs> them and destroyed right, them. Right, right. And send 50 bucks. Don't forget that part. And, and send 50 <laughs> bucks and be sure to reelect me or the whole yeah. world's going to fall apart. How do you avoid that? How do you make it uh, create a space where you can have real dialogue? Yeah. So it, it really starts, our, we begin every show uh, saying we're here to divide rage from reason and elevate the conversation. Yeah. And the the interesting thing to me is that people are starving for it. They're starving for yeah. it. They're so exhausted by the other. It's why many, you know, tune out. Um, they don't know how to ask for it. Like if you did a, you know, a Pew Research poll, nobody's going to say, yeah, what I really want is is this. Uh, mm. But when they hear it, it's like oxygen. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, oh, yeah, give me more, give me more of that. Uh, and so it is having just a very rational, very reasonable conversation with folks and then getting it to the principles. Yeah. Uh, today I had people on all sides of the infrastructure and what infrastructure is or isn't or yeah. should or shouldn't be and how much we should or shouldn't spend at what level. And, and we, can have, we can have disagreement about that. So I, I always say it's, it's not about disagreeing less. It's about disagreeing better. Uh, Great way to put the, it. The country, the country is better when we are a company of big competing ideas and open debate. That's who we are. It's how we do it uh, yeah. that matters. One of the things that I love about your show as a fan, because this is me coming from a fan <laughs> point of view, and, and I think it's why it's got to be part of why it's called Inside Sources. You take a lot of time to give background, uh, whereas I think a lot of shows, we have this guest on and we're going to talk about infrastructure. That's not infrastructure. <laughs> yes, it is. No, it's not. And you will take the time to deconstruct. Yeah. Does it surprise some of your guests when they come on as to the, like, do they walk away going, wow, that was different? Uh, yeah, you, you get some of that. Uh, in fact, just last week I had uh, I had three members of Congress in the studio. Wow. Uh, one, one Democrat, two Republicans, uh, and really kind of across the spectrum if you looked at it. Uh, and I think the, uh, the, the lone Democrat was a little nervous coming in, uh, and he had a blast. Mm. He's like, oh, that's not what I expected, <laughs> which is a good thing. That's awesome. Uh, and, you know, my goal is one to – in every conversation, and even when I'm a guest on other shows across the country, uh, my goal is always to make sure there's at least one point where we can say, you know, I agree with you on that. Wow. Uh, I, I think everybody agrees on this. And when you when you point that out, it, it changes everything. And, and we have to do the same thing in our communities, and we definitely have to do it at home uh, because it's it's very easy. We All of the social media forces and, and guides us into that kind of 
altercation right because again you're disconnected mm. um where we have to see and see deeply and then we have to talk differently yeah uh, i think uh, really interesting. i i had the opportunity to interview uh just before he passed away uh rabbi lord jonathan Sachs, mm. uh rabbi of the united kingdom uh one of the, if you haven't read any of his stuff i've not everybody should read rabbi Sachs. Mm. like he is one of the greatest thinkers ever uh, but he, I learned so much from him, uh, and you know whether it's Rabbi Sachs or I, I interviewed uh, the Archbishop of the Greek Orthodox Church of America, uh, and uh, I, there's just some things I have some holy envy uh, for them. But but Rabbi Sachs pointed out that when when uh, Solomon was asked what he wanted from the Lord, he asked. For a listening heart. Mm. A listening heart. Uh, that's a whole nother ball game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you apply that to your politics, to your business, to your community, and to your family. Uh, and, it's, and it is different. And what a beautiful so, gift. Yeah. This has been such a fascinating conversation. Boyd, you're another one I could sit here and ask questions for hours and hours. I appreciate the time. We're going to wrap things up with the question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, Boyd, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Oh, you know, for me, um, it is about a... It's always been about a journey to discipleship. I mm. think I think if we're not disciples first, uh, we're not going to last. And I think that... that commitment to that journey uh, is what it's about. And then the fact that we get to do it together, uh, mm-hmm. that this is a combined journey. Uh, and, they, and there's two parts, I think, to me of what that journey really means. And the first part is something I learned uh, watching President Nelson. So in my role at the Deseret News, I had the great blessing of being able to not follow the prophet, but chase the prophet <laughs> around the world at the pace that he was going before the pandemic. Yeah, And I have seen him with world political leaders, with business leaders, with religious leaders of other faiths, and good people everywhere. And he, he does this thing where President Nelson will come up alongside and he just slides his arm in and links it. Mm. And then he locks it. And in fact, we were in we were in Chile uh, at the dedication of the Chile Temple, and we were actually talking with with Elder Stevens, and we were talking about just watching how he does that and pulls people in and links arms with people. And uh, somebody in the group made a comment of, "Well, you know, he's he's over ninety six years of age; he's just balancing himself." <laughs> And Elder Stevens immediately said, oh, no, he'll rip your shoulder out if you're not ready. <laughs> I mean, it is a linking and it is a locking of arms. Oh, that's and to me, that's part of what it means uh, to be a member and to be a disciple is that we're all on this covenant path thing together. And some of us crisscross and, you know, only get on that path occasionally. Uh, but but we keep going and we, we link arms that way. And the second thing to me as to what it means is I I firmly believe that none of us are going to be judged uh, by how many meetings we sat in, mm. how many camps we went on, how many chairs we set up or took down in the <laughs> cultural hall, uh, or even you know how many how many lessons we taught in primary or Sunday school or young women's or young men. Uh, the only thing that really matters is the the outcome. What have we become? And so to me, uh, I think we often overcomplicate things. And so to me, the essence of all of this is that we know we have a, a loving Heavenly Father. And because He loves us, He gave us a Savior in Jesus Christ. And because of the Savior and that need, He sent prophets and apostles. And if we stay linked to that group, that's a good day. <laughs> uh, and that's a certain way uh, in a world filled with uncertainty. And so I, I look at what it means to me. It's We're all fellow travelers. We're all fellow travelers. And nobody's any better or any worse. We all need the atonement in the same way. The atonement is not just for sin. 
the atonement is for all of our hurt and our heartache and our loneliness and weariness and all those other things. And when we come to know that, uh, that's the essence to me of what the gospel is really all about. Absolutely beautiful. He is a husband, a father, a speaker, a writer, and the list could go on and on, a political consultant. He is the host of Inside Sources weekdays from 1 to 3 p.m. Mountain Time on KSL News Radio 102.7 or at kslnewsradio.com. Boyd Matheson, thank you for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Great to be with you. And my special thanks to my guest, Boyd Matheson. It was so wonderful having Boyd here in our home and to get to sit down face-to-face and talk to each other. I could have listened to him all day. He is a fascinating, brilliant man doing great things in the world. Boyd, thank you so much. Uh, This week in my Latter-day life, I just got back from a barbecue competition. And this was a big one. It's actually the biggest one in the state of Utah. It's down in Kanab, Utah, which is about four hours south of where I live. And normally I do steak cook-offs. They're a one-day deal. You get there in the morning, you cook uh, in the afternoon, and you go home that night uh, because you're just cooking steak and one or two other things. This one was a full barbecue contest, uh, and like I said, the biggest one in Utah, and you're actually cooking chicken, pork, uh, brisket, ribs, and turkey in this one. And so I knew I couldn't do it alone. And so some some of the guys I compete with on the steak circuit, uh, they've become good friends of mine. And two guys who I wouldn't say we're good friends, but we're friends when we see each other, um, Marty and Scott, I reached out to them and said, hey guys, I'm going to go down and cook at this event. Do you guys want to go? And they both said it sounded like a lot of fun. And so we, we all prepared to go. And I've got to admit, I got a little bit nervous. I know that uh, Marty and Scott are not members of our faith. And I thought, man, we're going to be spending a lot of time together. I wonder if they know that I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Are they going to feel comfortable with me? Are they going to feel comfortable being themselves? And I started to have all these worries. And then I started thinking, I hope that they're comfortable. If they do know I'm a member of the church, how can I make sure that they feel comfortable and that they're able to be themselves? And for some reason, it kind of worried me a little bit. Now, I have lots of friends who aren't members of the church, friends I hang out with all the time, and they know my faith and they understand it. But this was a new friendship. These were guys that I barely knew. And suddenly, I was going to be spending a lot of time with both of them. Well, we got there, we got set up in the evening, and all of my worries just went away. These are two of the best guys I know, and uh, they made it very obvious that they knew I was a member of the church, but they also made it obvious that they were going to be comfortable with each other when uh, they each uh, got out a beer and uh, said, hey, here's to our team, and they toasted us, and Marty joked, uh, Sean, we're not even going to offer you a beer, but why don't you grab a bottle of water or something? And we toasted each other, and, you know, we made some jokes about it. And then we spent the next, uh, oh, many, many hours cooking together. We started at 4 a.m., didn't get done the next day till 2 p.m., and uh, we just had a blast. And they were very much themselves, and I was very much myself, and a great brotherhood was formed. In fact, at the end of it, we all talked about uh, cooking together again in a future competition because we had such a great event. You know, it's important for us as Latter-day Saints, like I say at the end of every episode, to be in the world. It's important to build bonds with people who are not of our faith and uh, to continue to grow those. I'm so grateful. I have hundreds and hundreds of friends who are not of our faith, and I love them. And I'm so grateful that they accept me. And it's so important for us as members of the church to show our friends that we accept them for who we are, that we're not judging them, that we just love them, and that they're God's children, and that we all build bonds together and hope the same from them. I'm just so grateful for weekends like this weekend and making new friends. What a blessing it is. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. We really appreciate it. The Latter-day Lives podcast is produced by Gene Chittister, social media by Skylar Fleming, and I've been your host, Sean Rapier. I think that's about all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, 
There is a great big beautiful world out there. Go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.